Tonight, we're continuing in our study of favorite passages. And I will tell you that the book of Romans, as I mentioned last Sunday evening, is a very doctrinal book with a strong practical emphasis. How it deals with matters where you and I find ourselves throughout the week. Often, the first 11 chapters are called the doctrinal chapters. And then chapters 12 through 16 are often called the practical ones. I don't think that always fits because many times the doctrinal things, as we observed from chapter 8 last week, deal with things that are practical in our lives. And I recognize as you deal with practical matters, there must be a thus saith the Lord. There must be some strong doctrinal emphasis behind that. I think chapter 12 of the book of Romans is perhaps one of the brightest lights within a very bright uh, book. You see a chapter there that is talking about what it means to be a real Christian. Not just one in name only, but how it affects what you say and how it affects how you treat other people. And especially those who are not very nice to you. So what we want to talk about is the context before you can appreciate Romans 12:21, you've got to appreciate the rest of Romans 12. Then we want to talk about that very short verse in verse 21. We'll talk about the commandment to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And then finally, to look at the challenge that that puts in front of us. So if you will, take your Bibles and let's look at Romans 12 very briefly. I'm going to give you an outline that I use of the chapter, and then we're going to notice some of the key details. As you begin with verse 1 and 2, you see it emphasizing a spiritual transformation. You cannot become a child of God without there being a spiritual transformation in your life where you're no longer living for yourself, but you're living for God. In verses 3 through 8, he's going to talk about a sober spiritual service. How you and I look at ourselves and have a sober view of who I am. I am to be a servant of God. Not to think more highly of myself than I ought to think. And every talent with which God has blessed me, I ought to use it to His glory. Then beginning with verse 9, going through verse 13, talks about a sweet spiritual service. How do I serve God? Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cleave to what is good. I've got to be the kind of person that I love the souls of men that I serve. That's not just elders. That's not just preachers. That's every child of God seeing himself as a servant motivated by a genuine love for the brethren. And then verses 14 through 21, spurning retaliation. That is where I say I am not going to retaliate because of the way people treat me. Now let's focus, if you will, on some of the key points of context. If you'll look with me particularly at verse 1, and that's emphasized that my life, your life, our lives belong to God. Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You see, I take myself and I present myself to God just like you would give a sacrifice. I'm giving myself. 
which he says, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. God is not asking too much from you. When God says, I don't want what you have, I want you, he's not asking too much from us. The second key element is found in verse 2, and that is we must reject the world's model versus God's model. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, it's easy for a person to conform to the world's standards and to allow the world to shape us, to mold us, to guide us. But he says, don't do that. Be transformed, be changed in the renewing of your mind. My mind has to be involved in being a faithful child of God. Third key element is the proper view of self. It's peppered throughout this chapter. I just want to just touch base at verse 3, verse 10, verse 16. He said, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each man or each one a measure of faith. Verse 10, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Verse 16, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Here's reality. Most of us will outwardly project humility. But inwardly in our minds many times we're thinking, I'm indispensable. I am the important one. Everything should revolve around my wishes, my desires, my choices and Paul is saying, no, that's not the case. He looks at himself and he says, I say through the grace that is given to me, the grace, charis, from which we get our word charismatic, talking about the kind of gifts that people sometimes, what was been given to me, he says, I say to each one of you not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think. Not to think of yourself up here, he says, but to think soberly. That doesn't mean you have to view yourself as being worthless. You're not worthless. If you're made in the image of God, you are worth something. You have value. You have a, something to contribute. But verse 10 says, an honor giving preference to one another. That means I make a choice. Who do I seek to please? Do I seek to please myself? Or do I seek to do what is in your best interest and what benefits you? And that's sometimes very difficult to do. Verse 16, he says, Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. One of the greatest challenges that you and I have is to recognize that our opinions are no better than anyone else's opinions. And in fact, if it's in the realm of opinion, if it's in the realm of judgment, then I should be willing to put the opinions of others ahead of myself. That is an important key element in understanding this chapter. Number four, 
as a key aspect of this chapter is recognizing God has a plan and one must respect that plan. Do I recognize that God, when he created this world, didn't just sit back and say, let's just see what happens. God had a plan from the very beginning of time. We talk about the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. We talk about all of God's plans working throughout history. In fact, that was a lot of what last Sunday evening's lesson was about. But notice the latter part of verse 3. And then verse 19, he says, According as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. All of those spiritual gifts that he talks about, as God has dealt them out, and I think like a dealer dealing out a hand, only this is not done uh, arbitrarily, not as done, God has a plan in mind. And as he gives this one this gift and that one that gift, God knows what he's doing. Verse 19 Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place for wrath. It is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God knows what every sin deserves. He knows how to correct it. He knows how to fulfill it. And I need to recognize God has that plan. And I don't need to try to interrupt it. I need to respect it. And then finally... That word, overcome. One must overcome evil. Many of you may know about Nike tennis shoes. You may not know that the word Nike is a Greek word. And it means victory. That's a noun. This is the verb form of that here. When he says, do not be overcome by evil. He's talking about us winning the battle, if you will, of good versus evil. Sometimes I look at this world and I'm like that song, though the wrong seems all so strong, God is the ruler yet. That song, This Is My Father's World. Folks, we have to recognize the context here is talking about winning over evil. Now let's focus for just a few moments on the commandment. What does he say? Do not be overcome by evil. When I look at verse 21, the last verse of the chapter, and I go back to the second verse where he says, Do not be conformed to this world. He's really putting, at, if you will, bookends at this chapter. The beginning of the chapter, don't be conformed to this world. The latter part of the chapter, he is saying, don't allow sin to overcome you. Don't allow evil to overcome you. I want you to listen to a few verses of Scripture which, to me, highlight this. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Do you ever feel like we're losing the battle for right versus wrong in this world? Do you feel like when you turn on your television and maybe you're just wanting to watch an innocent show, maybe you're only wanting to watch the news, and you hear reporting to you and people are using vulgar, foul language, 
and you hear things that are ungodly and sinful, and then you hear that in our country that people are promoting, whether it's uh, drugs or whether they're promoting sexual promiscuity or they're promoting uh, immoral lifestyles, sometimes I think we're losing. But what John says is, we know that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He's got his influence in this world. In 2 Peter 2 and verse 19, Peter writes, While they promised them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him is he also brought into bondage. The world has been tricked. The world has been fooled. The world has been told you can sin and whenever you decide you want to, you can quit. Just like a person says, oh, you can try this drug. Whenever you don't like it, you don't have to use it anymore. And then a person finds out they can't turn loose on it. The truth is, is that sin, just like the devil has allowed itself to get in the world, trick the world, and bring the world into bondage of sin. In the very beginning, I think about those two brothers, Cain and Abel. Evidently, Cain was a man of some sort of disposition because he became very angry. His countenance fails, what the Bible says. He, you could see it on his face. But Genesis 4 and verse 7, God speaks to Cain and he tells him, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door. We would say he's at your door with his finger on the doorbell going ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. He doesn't want to leave. But here's what God told him. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Sin wants you, Cain, but you can't rule over that sin if you just will. The world does not realize you can say no to sin. You can refuse to be a part of it. Proverbs 25 and verse 28 Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Whenever you lose the ability of self-control, you are in a world where you're just vulnerable from every direction. Just like a city. You know, in our times, we don't think much about not living in a walled city, but in the biblical times... You dare not live in a big area without walls around it for protection. We as Christians, people of God, have to recognize we have to have self-control, which is our walls, if you will, of protection. So he says, do not be overcome by evil. But now here's the second aspect of it. But overcome evil... With good. Listen to Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48. 
our Lord in the great Sermon on the Mount is going to address this very subject in his sermon and how a person is able to do that. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist the evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you to take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go with you or go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And then he says, and if you greet your brethren only, what do you have more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus has made it clear It's not a matter of retaliation. It's not a matter of throwing it back at a person. He says, no, you don't hate them. You don't mistreat them. You love them. You pray for them. You do good to them. Well, that's a challenge in and of itself. Listen to 1 Peter 3 and verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Or, let's think of it like this. I know you've heard of the laws of life. There's what is referred to as the iron rule. Do unto others before they do unto you. It is illustrated in the philosophy of men like Nietzsche. The might, the power, the right... As long as I have more power than you, I can take what you have. I can do whatever I want to. I'll do it to you before you do it to me. That's the iron rule. Not too far from that is what's called the brass or the bronze rule. Do to others what they do to you. You do something bad to me, I will respond to that. Proverbs twenty four twenty nine says, Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to man according to his work. Now let me tell you, that's the rule that rules in most of the people's lives today. You do something to me, I'll do it right back to you. Then there's what's referred to as the silver rule. Do not do to others what you would not have them to do to you. As long as you leave me alone, I'm going to leave you alone. I'm not ever going to do anything bad to you, but you'd better not mess with me. And then what is known as the golden rule which Jesus stated in Matthew 7, 12, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. What that means, that one verse is, this is not just New Testament teaching. 
This was God's plan from the very creation of man. Good people have always tried to treat others the way themselves would want to be treated. And that's what's involved by overcoming evil with good. Now for just a few minutes, let me talk about the challenge here. Have you ever felt when you were given a challenge in the Bible that sometimes that's really hard to live up to? For instance, if you know somebody hates you, somebody is really seeking your downfall, maybe you're at work, you've got one of your co-workers that's trying to undermine you at every turn. They're trying to say bad things about you that are not true. And you are faced with a situation of how do you handle the way people treat you sometimes. Well, let me point out to you, you have to realize this command is the only way to ever break the cycle of hostility. I want you to think about that. Where you have a situation, someone does something to someone else, the Hatfields and the McCoys, if you want to call it that, and one does this and the other says, well, we've got to respond. Somewhere along the line, someone has to overcome the evil with the good or the hostility will never cease. Nations did that. You remember Jacob and Esau, two brothers? The animosity, the enmity that existed between those. Do you know that their children and their descendants kept that going for generations? Fast forward to the time of the Babylonian captivity. Ezekiel 35.5 Because you have had an ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity when their iniquity came to an end. God's looking at Edom and saying, Why have you continued this hatred? Go to the book of Obadiah, verses 10 through 12. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lot for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. He goes on to say, when they were trying to escape, you stood at the crossroads and wouldn't let them go. This kind of enmity exists between nations today. You look at the nations of this world and see if there is not this returning evil for evil, evil for evil. And it seems as if nations could never come together because no one is willing to return good for evil. Think about that in a personal sense. No, let's think about it in a congregational sense. Listen to Psalms 15 and verse 3. He's going to ask, who shall dwell in his holy hill in verse 1? He says, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friends. Look at that word, backbite. His neighbor bit him first. What does he do? He bites him back. Listen to Proverbs 25, 23. The north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. 
You bite somebody back, you know what's going to happen? They're going to become more angry. It's going to escalate, if you will. Or listen to Galatians 5 and verse 15, written to the churches of Galatia. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. You want to destroy a congregation, let somebody always try to get even with somebody else, and then you will see nobody wins. Nobody wins. Think about it in marriages. One of the unfortunate tasks that most preachers have is trying to help families resolve their conflicts. And I say it unfortunate because it's hard to be successful many times. And when you deal with families, one of the things that I have observed is generally this. Marriage will fall apart because no one will ever say, I'm sorry. They'll say, I can't let them get the upper hand. I cannot. You know what happens? If it escalates and escalates and escalates and everybody keeps returning evil for evil, it will fall apart. The practicality of this statement in Romans 12 and verse 21 is hard to overestimate. Where there's no wood, the fire goes out. Where there's no tailbear, strife ceases. Proverbs 23. It is honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. It's honorable to stop and say, do I need to take this any further? Is there any righteous benefit to it? The best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. I would use the fellow's name, but I will tell you, when I was, began preaching, I had a young man in class who was close to my age, and I believe that his goal in life was to make mine miserable. I really believe that. I believe that he was enjoying making me miserable. Every class that I went into that he was in, he would find some area of weakness and exploit it. And I will tell you, when you're young, there's a lot of weaknesses and it's very easy to pick them out, and it was really, really tough. I even contemplated maybe I need to go back into the car business as I'd grown up in. But eventually was able to invite him out to play tennis. We played a little while and had a little bit of fun. He invited me then to go play basketball with him, and I did. Enjoyed it. Ended up making a close friend of him. And then he decided he was going to preach and went to preacher training school. And I helped him raise the funds for him to do that. Very successful man now. And I think back now, I don't know that I consciously thought of Romans 12:21, but I know one thing, that passage works. The best way is to make a friend. Listen to him in the text if it is possible, as much as depends on you, what you can do about it. Listen to Proverbs 18.24. A man who has friends must himself be friendly. You've got to put some effort into it to create a friend out of him. 
Next challenge is to realize that God will right all wrongs and he doesn't need our assistance. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God doesn't need me to mete out his judgment. What about those who continue evil toward us? You know, I I think here is the real challenge. Here you are, and somebody is attempting to do you wrong. And you say, I know what Tony taught in that lesson Sunday night. I'm supposed to return good for evil. He does you evil, and you return good. And then he does you evil again. And you say, all right, I'm done now. Now I'm going to return evil for evil. Listen to Matthew 5, verse 39. But I tell you not to resist the evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And then I've heard some of my brethren say, then if he does it again, knock him down. No, that's not what he says. Listen to 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 23. For to this you were called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He did exactly what Romans 12 said. He left vengeance to God. He committed himself to God who will take care of it. Go to chapter 3. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion, one another. Love his brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous, not returning evil for evil, reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing. For to this you were called that you may inherit a blessing. He's going to talk about you love life and good days. Let your refrain, tongue refrain from speaking deceit and uh, your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil. Do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. God is able to take these things and correct them. Isaiah 50 and verse 6. Prophecy. I gave my back to those who struck me. My cheeks to those who plucked my beard, I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Our Lord showed us exactly how to react. It's hard not to retaliate, and it's even harder to treat people good when they do treat us evil. However, Jesus showed us a better way, and we ought to be grateful that he does, because here's why. We didn't treat him very well. The hostility could have continued were it not for the fact that Jesus said, I am going to do good for them. I'm going to end with Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. I was an enemy. Alienated. And that's when Jesus went to the cross to die for us. What a powerful passage is Romans chapter 12, verse 21. 
Tonight, if you need to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, what a glory and a privilege you have. If you believe and you're willing to repent, confess that faith and be baptized, the Lord will add you to his body, the church, and you enjoy all the blessings that go with that. If you're one of his children and you're living in the world of sin, now's your time to come back home as together we stand and sing.